This is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, Canadian mining companies misbehave and get taken to court. A Canadian singer-songwriter pays homage to Johnny Cash. And humanity at the crossroads. One scientist calls for time out and careful thought. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm Dave Kattenberg. The conviction of a notorious war criminal in The Hague has raised hopes that the rule of law does indeed prevail. Former Serb General Ratko Mladic was handed a life sentence by an international court in The Hague this past week for genocide, crimes against humanity, and other assorted atrocious acts committed in the early 1990s in the ruins of Yugoslavia. Worst among these, the infamous siege of Sarajevo and the massacre of 8,000 Muslim men and boys in the village of Srebrenica. The fact that Mladic has many fans in Serbia today lionizing him for his heinous acts is a small reason why celebration should be tempered. The big one glaring us all in the face, the five permanent nuclear powers at the UN Security Council are above the law. George Bush, Dick Cheney, Tony Blair, the Clintons, Henry Kissinger will never face justice for the death and disorder they've sown, nor will Russia for its support of chemical weapons wielding Bashar al-Assad. Russia just blocked a resolution at the UN Security Council calling for investigation of Assad's alleged war crimes this past September for Palestinian human rights organizations filed a 700-page report to the International Criminal Court documenting a host of grave crimes committed by Israel in the course of its 50-year occupation of Palestine. Among the alleged crimes, unlawful killing, forced transfer, persecution, apartheid, under relentless pressure from the U.S. and European Union, the ICC complaint will likely gather lots of dust before it goes to court. So, the conviction of a notorious Slavic or African warlord suggests that international law prevails. In most other cases, it's business as usual that rules the day. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm Dave Kattenberg. I can't believe the things I'm seeing I wonder about some things I heard Everybody's crying mercy When they don't know the meaning of the word A bad enough situation It's sure enough it's getting worse Everybody's crying justice Just as long as it's business first Toe to toe Touch and go Give it to you, get your souvenir People running round in circles 
they don't know where they're headed for Everybody's crying peace on earth Just as soon as we win this war Everybody's crying mercy when they don't know the meaning of the word. Nobody knows the meaning of the word. A favorite song of mine by Mose Allison performed by John Hammond Jr., Everybody's Crying Mercy. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Speaking of justice, this past summer, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that Tahoe Resources of British Columbia must face its Guatemalan accusers in a Vancouver courtroom. The group of miners have a right to sue Tahoe for negligence and battery at its Escobal silver mine in Peru. The Supreme Court ruled in spite of the long-standing doctrine that foreign courts are the place to seek redress, Jen Moore coordinates the Latin America program for Mining Watch. Jen, it's great to have you on the Green Blues show. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be talking again. Indeed. Canadian mining companies kind of don't have a very good reputation. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on who you talk with. If you speak with people in the Canadian government or in the mining community, they probably say uh, Canadian mining companies are at the lead in, in, in developing, you know, forging a, you know, a new, more sustainable type of mining. Um, but I think that in, 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 in the non-mainstream media, outside the mainstream media, and even in the mainstream media, it seems uh, Canadian mining companies and, and mining has a, a, a bad reputation. Could you comment on that? Does it? I, I certainly think it does. I think that the work that our organization and many organizations and groups have done over the last uh, couple of decades to raise the voices and, and, um, and draw attention to the experiences that are really happening on the ground uh, in Canada and around the world has, has started to, to be heard. And, and the media, and as you know, both independent media and, and some mainstream media have been picking that up. Um, along the way, and, and I think even more so since there have been some legislative initiatives over the years, like Bill C-300 back in 2010, um, that 
aimed to try to condition Canadian government supports to the overseas mining industry on um, respect for some uh, standards that would be set if that legislation had been passed and um, and and some of the lawsuits that are that are proceeding today in Canadian courts against Canadian mining companies as well have gone a considerable distance to putting that on the public agenda uh, that relate to um, violence and uh, and slavery at uh, Canadian mining overseas operations, and so I think which which ones specifically can you if you mentioned that that sounds pretty horrid uh, who specifically. Are these have have these allegations been which mining companies? There, there's uh, a seat, set of like five suits. Three that are against Head Bay Minerals for abuses in Guatemala. Another suit. Uh, those are proceeding in Ontario courts against Tahoe Resources in British Columbia, uh, also for abuses at a different mine site in Guatemala, and against Nevsun uh, in British uh, going ahead in British Columbia for abuses in Eritrea. Um, and and I think the attention that's been brought over time to the issues and to these different cases has made it. Um, I I don't think the government can deny that there's a problem anymore. Um, the the extent to which and the nature of that um, we would dispute, but um, but there's certainly I think an awareness that that there's a problem out there now. And you yourself, uh, Jen, uh, last year you were you were de- you were detained in Peru for for showing apparently for showing a film about H- Hud Bay. Uh, can, can you can you take us back to then and tell us what happened? Sure. Um, sort of br- briefly run through that. Yeah, uh, in April of this year, I was in in Cusco, the 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 region of Cusco, so in in the southernmost part of the the department. Um, Working with traveling with a U.S. Uh, independent documentarian, John Dougherty, in Peru, in Peru, who had produced uh, a film about Hud Bay Minerals, um, America's wide operations. So from Manitoba to Guatemala to to, to Peru, the film talks about uh, the legacy of environmental contamination and health harms from the Flin Flon operations of of Hud Bay. Um, that have been for a long time, um, especially from the, the smelter uh, in in town, and talked about violent uh, crimes around its uh, Phoenix nickel project, um, which had they owned uh, before it um, got in back into operation a few years ago, and where there was a local land rights activist who was murdered, uh, another young man who was paralyzed, and uh, when he was shot on the same occasion, and about a group of 11 Maya Kekchi women who were uh, sexually, um, who, who were raped by police and private security guards during a forced eviction of their community back in 2007, and then also about um, repression and broken promises uh, and concerns about uh, future water contamination from the company's biggest mine operation, which is the Constancia Copper Project in Cusco. In Peru, and so you were detained in the course of showing this film. We had just finished screening the film at a the the cultural center in a municipal building in, in Cusco, and uh, leaving the building, we were surrounded by twenty plainclothes police and um, asked to identify ourselves, which we did, and to show our passports, which we did, and then we were taken into detention for four hours, where it was very clear that they were trying to take 
um, much more extensive uh, to interrogate us much more extensively um, and uh, under advice from our, our lawyers at that point we we refused to give further declarations until um, we had some uh, the opportunity to to get further advice and, and clarity about what was going on and um, the next day so we were detained for four hours and then let go um, and the next day under advice from our lawyers decided to voluntarily uh, leave the country and pursue any um, investigation at a distance through our legal representation in Peru. So we did that and um, I gave power of attorney to some lawyers in Peru and what we found out a couple of months later is that the same day that we left, the superintendent of migration issued uh, a migratory alert against the two of us to prohibit us from uh, re-entering Lima uh, indefinitely. And um, So you're, you're, bar you're barred from the country? We're barred from the country, and it's important to point out as well that um, the, 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 the day after we were detained as well, the Ministry of Interior issued a really uh, damning and, and, and defamatory uh, accusations against the two of us on its website, accusing us of inciting local farming communities to violent protest and um and 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 calling us a threat to public order um very serious accusations now the canadian the canadian the canadian mining companies um they they hire their own police the people who who are alleged to have committed these various outrages security people police these people are in the pay of of the mining company am i correct that, that's correct. In in Peru, um, there are there are many mining companies, and Hud Bay is one of them that hires uh, the police for their twenty four hour security services. And uh, based on a copy of the contract that we've seen uh, between the company and, and police in Cusco from a few years ago, we don't have the most current contract. Um, we believe that it's very possible that everything that happened to us could have been happening uh, as as a result of the contract between the company and and the police. And uh, the Peruvian organizations have denounced these contracts um, before the Inter-American Human Rights Commission. And even the president of the Inter-American Commission has, has stated that uh, she thinks these, these contracts and this sort of privatization of, of public security should, should be abolished. Tell me, about, tell me about Tahoe. Tahoe, sure. Um, Tahoe Resources is basically a spin-off uh, company from, from Gold Core, which is a little bit um, better known. Um, that Their principal project uh, since the company started back in 2010 uh, has been the Escoval Mine in southeastern Guatemala. And um, this company has employed what we call a militarized security strategy to, to force its way into communities that have not wanted anything to do with the company and have been very vocal about that through uh, locally organized democratic um, referendum that have been carried out in some 16 uh, municipalities and villages in which tens of thousands of people have voted against any mining in their area because of their fear and their what they've seen in other, other communities about the impacts that this activity could have on their water and their health and their agriculture. And um, as a result, um, they've faced a very aggressive campaign uh, from this company and its supporters and the Guatemalan government um, in which... Over around a hundred people have been legally persecuted for participating in private protests, uh, pub 
peaceful protests or for trying to organize these local referendums. Um, there have been at least seven people who've been killed um, as a result of the, the, the violence and the tensions that have um, been created. And, uh, and there was even a military state of siege that was imposed on the area uh, shortly before the government, or just after the government issued the final permit for the company to put its operation into into production in 2013, and it was during that moment where um, the company's head of security uh, at the time ordered its uh, private security guards to fire on a peaceful protest just outside the mine site, injuring seven men. And it's um, that those events that are the subject of the lawsuit that's been brought against. Uh, Tahoe Resources in, in British Columbia, and that's proceeding um, right now. Who are the plaintiffs? There are uh, several of the men who were injured that day when they were shot upon by, by the private security guards at the mine. And there's considerable um, evidence. Uh, we've got a, a video um, that was taken from the that's been uh, obtained through the courts and and uh, was taken from the company's own own cameras, and uh, there was also wiretap evidence of the conversations that the the head of security for Tahoe Resources was having with the security guards at the time. Head of head of security for Tahoe based. Based in uh, in Vancouver, ba- he he would he would he was based in Guatemala, huh. uh, and Tahoe huh. Resources, the head the head office, the head. Um, well, it's re- like it's legally incorporated and registered in in British Columbia. They they have their office in in, in Nevada, in Reno. Uh, but all of the employees in Nevada work for uh, the registered company in British Columbia. So the law case, the lawsuit has now been filed and it's in court uh, against Tahoe. And wh- where does it stand at this moment? What's the, the situation with that, that lawsuit? What's it? Yeah, status? it's basically been cleared to go to trial. Um, in January of this year, the uh, British Columbia Appeals Court um, decided that British Columbia is the best place for this case to be heard, given the tremendous economic and political asymmetries between a transnational corporation like Tahoe Resources operating in a country like Guatemala, where the the Guatemalan government and and the company have a tight relationship, and the chance of uh, the plaintiffs getting justice in in Guatemala is is uh, near is slim to impossible, and so the. Tahoe tried to uh, seek leave for appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court denied that in in June, and so it's basically on on its way to to eventual hearings on the merits of the case now, which will will take some time. Um, and does Tahoe does Tahoe deny that 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 it's done all these things? I, have they said we did we we haven't done any of that? We're we're not associated with those crimes. Um, it has tried to um i mean in the immediate aftermath it 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 talked about not having used uh live ammunition but rubber bullets um it tried to distance itself uh, for for a little bit uh from the the head of security um it it can't outright deny um everything that happened that day there's so much evidence of it um, it was trying to get the case shelved by arguing that Guatemala was the best place for it to be heard, and he didn't succeed on that that count. Um, so, but um, but it did absolutely denies its its negligence in in what took place, and um, we'll see how that how that plays out as the case moves along. 
Jen Moore, what would you like, what would Mining Watch and yourself like to see the Canadian government do, the, the Trudeau government, in terms of holding mining companies accountable? And indeed, all, all corporations operating abroad, but focusing on mining companies? What, what do you want the government to do? There, there's, a, there's a whole host of things that, that we need uh, the Canadian government to do. Uh, most immediately, Mining Watch and, and uh, members of the Canadian Network for Corporate Accountability are, are pressuring the Canadian government to, to create a human rights ombudsman that could actually carry out investigations and really have robust powers to compel um, to compel information and testimony uh, from from companies in the course of such investigations, uh, we need better access to to Canadian courts as well. Um, there are real hurdles uh, for for communities to to move those court those cases ahead, and those could be uh, lightened. We and so and so the Canadian government could uh, through some kind of legislation make it easier for for civil society groups to bring suits in Canadian it, courts. It certainly could. And it could also pursue um, the crimes that have happened. We, I mean, criminal uh, persecutions have to be driven by um, state prosecutors. And um, so that that's something that really requires some serious will on the part of our government, which I think goes to that we also need the government to stop doing some things. Um, we need the government to stop throwing its weight behind the, the Canadian uh, mining companies through policies like economic diplomacy, which basically uh, channel 100% of Canadian embassies' interests in, in backing private interests around the world, which in many countries translates into more uh, support for mining companies, given that's, that's such a big area uh, for, for Canadian investment abroad. And we need them to also... Um, stop backing these really unjust international tribunals that are the absolute antithesis to corporate accountability in which uh, through investment protection agreements and free trade agreements, the Canadian government in um, through its uh, free trade pacts has, has granted uh, corporations the power to sue governments when they make decisions that they don't like. And we've got, uh, it, I mean, Canada's not alone in that, but Canada really upholds the model. And uh, and, and we're seeing a proliferation of, of lawsuits from Canadian mining companies against governments uh, in Latin America and in other areas where um, basically what they're trying to do is put a chill on public policy making in the public interest and, and undermine um, the, the, the right of communities to say no to these activities um, like they've done in, in, in many parts of the region, um, Costa Rica, uh, Colombia, uh, Peru, where uh, some of these uh, suits have been brought, El Salvador also being another notable case where um, really the whole country um, fought hard uh, to get a ban on, on metal mining, which they achieved this year, uh, but had to um, suffer under the pressure for seven years of a multi-million dollar suit that uh, Oceana Gold had brought against the, the country in order to uh, try to pressure the government into giving it a mining permit and uh, putting a chill on any uh, policy making that might lead to the ban that they they won after after many years of fighting really hard. So, so as in as in so many other uh, situations, really the Canadian government needs to be upholding the rule of law. Yes, and and not further stacking the law uh, for for the companies. Um, not only have we we've seen we've seen embassies, uh, you know, and and even Canadian aid dollars be used. 
uh, to try to uh, amend mining codes in in companies' favor in places like post coup Honduras and uh, and in Colombia and in other parts too. Jen, last question: uh, w- What can ordinary people do, citizens, consumers? Is there is there anything is there anything uh, we can do out here to uh, promote justice in in, uh, in mining communities in the around the world? Yeah, I mean, I think getting informed, I think continuing to spread the word is 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 a constant piece of work that that we can all be doing. Um, you know, the the fact that it you know these issues are are kind of are on the table today is the result of a lot of people's hard work at all levels over the years, and and we're far, we're a long way from being done. Um, and, and also getting tapped into some of the networks. Um, I mean, you can go to our website, uh, www.miningwatch.ca. We post, um, urgent actions and call for support, um, on an occasional basis on particular cases. And I think being aware of the, 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 the calls for mining justice for, and, and supporting struggles for in, Indigenous self-determination and, and Indigenous sovereignty in Canada is also part of this uh, this struggle, um, and and there are there are urgent actions that get issued from from different communities across uh, the country too, looking for uh, broader public support to to demonstrate the legitimacy of of, of communities asserting their rights up against really um, tough odds, uh, given the power of transnationals, not just abroad but but here in, in Canada too. Um, on the on the final push for for the the human rights ombudsman, I should draw people's attention to the the website for the CNCA as well, um, which is uh, CNCA hyphen RCRCE.ca, um, which is really kind of spearheading the campaign for the human rights ombudsman. And there are some um, calls for people to be you know raising this issue with their their members of parliament right now. Um, sort of hoping that in, in the coming weeks or, sh- or short months there, that uh, we could see some movement on that from the government. Jen Moore, thank you so much for joining us today on the Green Brew Show. Thank you, Dave. Jen Moore is coordinator of the Latin America program for Mining Watch. Read more about Mining Watch's work and the Tahoe Resources court case at greenplanetmonitor.net. Here's an old song about miners. Take a trip with me in 1913 To Calumet, Michigan in the copper country I'll Take you to a place called Italian Hall And the miners are having their big Christmas ball I'll take you in a door and up a high stairs Singing and dancing is heard everywhere I'll let you shake hands with the people you see And watch the Kids danced around the big Christmas tree There's talking and laughing and songs in the air And the spirit of Christmas is there everywhere Before you know it, 
your friends with us all And you dance and around and around in the hall You ask about work and you ask about pay They'll tell you they make less than a dollar a day Working their copper claims, risking their lives So it's fun to spend Christmas with children and wives A little girl sits down by the Christmas tree lights To play the piano so you gotta keep quiet To hear all this fun you would not realize That the copper boss thug men are milling outside The copper boss thugs stuck their heads in the door One of them yelled and he screamed, there's a fire A lady, she hollered, there's no such a thing Keep on with your party, there's no such a thing A few people rust and there's only a few It's just the thugs and the scabs fooling you A man grabbed his daughter and he carried her down But the thugs held the door and he could not get out And then others followed a hundred or more But most everybody remained on the floor The gun thugs, they laughed at their murderous joke And the children were smothered on the stairs by the door Such a terrible sight I never did see We carried our children back up to their tree The scabs outside still laughed at their spree And the children that died, they were 73 The piano played a slow funeral tune And the town was lit up by a cold Christmas moon The parents, they cried and the miners, they mourned See what Ramblin' Jack Elliott singing Woody Guthrie's classic lament, 1913 Massacre, recorded at the Woody Guthrie Memorial Concert at either Carnegie Hall in 1968 or the Hollywood Bowl in 1970. Not clear which. It's been over 14 years since Johnny Cash shuffled off his mortal coil for that grand old Opry in the sky. For some years now, a guy named Marcel Soulaudre, a Winnipegger, has been channeling Johnny Cash up and down northeastern France and Germany under the stage name Emsol. Marcel puts on fine acts for adoring European fans of Johnny Cash. Listen to this. I view the strength of coming. It's rolling around the bay. 
I'm sitting in a dimly lit restaurant in a village in Alsace, France, listening to a guy playing guitar. The baritone voice and song are hauntingly familiar. If I closed my eyes, I'd swear this is Johnny Cash. But Johnny died in 2003. Who is this man in black? Marcel Soulaudre, that's who, a singer-songwriter from Winnipeg, Canada, now living in Alsace, who's been paying homage to Johnny Cash in nightclubs across Europe under the stage name M-Soul. In a few hours, he'll be performing to a room full of Johnny Cash fans here in the village of Epfig. A few days ago, Marcel and I sat down for a chat about his career and where it all began in the French-speaking neighborhood of Canada's prairie capital, Winnipeg. St. Boniface is a cool place in Winnipeg. We speak French, we speak English. It was a place that I wanted to get out of, but I can appreciate it now that I come from there. And you grew up uh, as an Anglophone. You didn't grow up in a, in a conventionally Francophone family. You were, you were well, there was nothing very conventional about, <laughs> conventional about our family. Even by having a name Marcel Soulaudre, it's a very French-sounding name. But my mother was of American and English extraction, and she wanted um, bilingual names for all her children. Uh, by luck of the draw, having been the seventh out of eighth, I ended up with a very sort of French name. But we uh, spoke only English at home. I started to speak French willingly by learning theater craft. I had come to realize then that uh, the reason for my being was music and for me to get up on stage. The reason that I had learned the theater craft was an excuse for me to get on stage. Marcel found his stage on the sidewalks of Quebec City, busking folk and pop standards. Returning to St. Boniface, he formed a soul band and began performing songs of his own. At Winnipeg's French-language Festival des Voyageurs, Marcel met a Cajun fiddler named Hadley Castile, the encounter changed his life. They would come up to Winnipeg in February and play the Festival de Voyageurs. I would follow them back to Louisiana and play the Mardi Gras festivals and stay there. I even played the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival with them one year. I soaked up a lot of their music, and it was Hadley that uh, incited me to start writing songs in French. Hadley, um, he played Cajun fiddle, he knew all the Cajun songs, but he loved Texas Swing. He was a big fan of Harry Schultz, and uh, I later wrote a song about Harry Schultz called J'ai Toujours l'écho, which is on the J'avais dans les yeux album. J'ai toujours l'écho, du thé, du café, par du bon gumbo, j'ai toujours l'écho. J'avais dans les yeux, co-written by French songwriter Bernard Boquel, was released in 1995. Marcel's next disc won a Western Canada Music Award. But singing French songs in North America will only get you so far, and Marcel was ambitious. In 2003, he embraced the baritone voice and songs of one of his musical heroes, Johnny Cash, and began touring across North America. Wanted man in California, wanted man in Buffalo, wanted man in Kansas City, wanted man in Ohio. 
No sooner had the tour begun when Johnny Cash suddenly died. Soulaudre spent the next three years comforting fans from Saskatchewan to Texas. Might be in Colorado. Then, another turning point. In need of a rest, Marcel travels to France to visit family and friends. Friends had urged me to do a little show in a restaurant. At the end of it, a German guy comes up to me. He says, I want you to come and sing in my club in Germany. And uh, I thought, well, you know, that's, that's flattering. I'd like to do that. I'll go and play in your club, but who's going to take care of the visa? And he said, well, you don't need a visa here in Europe. This is a union. It's one big country. My mind was set. I was going to become, I was going to move to France and get permission to work, to work in all of Europe. There's more people, far less distances, and I get to discover the old world. The old world discovered Marcel and liked what it heard. M-Soul, as he now called himself, drew fans. Nothing can compare to the attraction of music really being played artfully and soulfully. They're thirsty for it. They're hungry for it. People are hungry for stuff that's real. Real American music is what this crowd of M-Soul fans excitedly awaits here in the heart of the Alsatian wine route. The half-timbered dining room of Epfig's restaurant Kiermann is packed. Sizzling wheels of tarte flambe, Alsatian pizza, sail out of a fiery brick oven as fast as they can be baked, off to packed tables brimming with local Riesling and Gewürztraminer. Time is on my side. In a back room, Marcel preps his musicians. Bassist Philippe Less and lead guitarist Jean-Paul Distel are native Alsatians who've taken a shine to Johnny Cash. For me, at the beginning, it, it, it wasn't um, so amazing because I... I didn't know well uh, Johnny Cash. But after playing and playing and playing, I, I, I started to, 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 lo- to love it, appreciate it. Now I, 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 I understand that it's not as, as easy as some people uh, think. I, I've played and heard, listened to a lot of American music, but Johnny Cash for me was more it's country. And now, I, I, as I say, I discovered something, and a, a real world. As Marcel and his band prepare for the show, back in the dining room, the president of a Johnny Cash fan club prepares to be entertained. C'est du vrai, c'est, c'est l'authenticité qui me plaît. Marcel's music is real, it's authentic, this pony-tailed man says. Johnny Cash is the one, it's him I love. Finally, the show begins. Emsel swaggers in front of the crowd, clutching his guitar. Je m'appelle Emsel, Everyone's favorite song gets played. Marcel teaches the crowd a chorus. All good things come to an end as the crowd slips slowly out into the Alsatian night. A few fans linger. This young man loves Johnny Cash and thinks Marcel portrays him well. Okay, salut. Entre bien. Marcel meets his fans 
and sells CDs. You know, they can tell you a story. They might have met Johnny Cash or they just discovered Johnny Cash. They really enjoyed it or I helped them discover it. And from what I understand, we were able to sell a few CDs, which is good. Tomorrow, Marcel will be off to his next gig. Uh, yes, we're going off to Germany, a place called Gaggenau, which is north of Baden-Baden. It's a beer garden. It's outside. And they're going to call us up at around noon and tell us if it's a go or not. Here in the heart of Europe, Johnny Cash, performed by Marcel Soulaudre, is bound to be a hoot, rain or shine. Check out Marcel Soulaudre at msoul.com, hyphen between the M and the soul. Here's Johnny Cash for real. Hey, get rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get a rhythm. When you get the blues, get a rock and roll feeling in your bones, but taps on your toes and get gone, get a rhythm. When you get the blues, a little shoe shine boy, he never gets low down, but he's got the dirtiest job in town. Bending low at the people's feet on the windy corner of the dirty street. Will I ask him while he shines my shoes how to keep from getting the blues? He grinned as he raised his little head, he popped his shoe shine rag, and he said, Get a rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get a rhythm. When you get the blues, a jumpy rhythm makes you feel so fine. It'll shake all your trouble from your worried mind. Get a rhythm. When you get the blues. Once to wipe the sweat away I said, you mighty little boy To be a-working that way He said, I like it With a big wide grin Kept on a-popping And he said again Get a rhythm When you get the blues Come on, get a rhythm When you get the blues It only cost a dime Just a nickel a shoe It does a million dollars Worth of good for you Get a rhythm When you get the blues Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two, Get Rhythm, recorded at Sun Records in 1956. Marshall Grant on bass and Luther Perkins on guitar. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Big rivers flowing to the ocean. Everyone knows biologically diverse forests crowd their banks when permitted to do so. Much less gets said about the voluminous sediments that rivers carry and deposit at their mouths. These vast clouds of particulate and organic matter are more than just wastes washed down Earth's gutters, as American naturalist Aldo Leopold dubbed rivers. These sedimentary island engineers ably protect dry land from the ravages of the sea. I spoke about this and other matters with Charles Forosmarty, 
director of the City University of New York's Environmental Crossroads Initiative. The Anthropocene, A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-C-E-N-E, is uh, a notion that is now taking hold within the Earth system science community. Um, And the idea is that uh, it's it's to be the new name of a geological epoch which is dominated by human beings. Probably the one place where I would argue you have the greatest justification for changing the name of the geological epoch is in the world of water. And the reason I say this is if you look at the um, the rates of change of the um, species in the marine environment, the land-based environment, the terrestrial environment, and the freshwater environments. The freshwater species assemblages are undergoing orders of magnitude, in other words, tens upon hundreds, if not thousands of times, faster rates of change than are the, their marine counterparts and the terrestrial counterparts on a per area basis. So freshwater uh, assemblages of organisms are under extreme peril, many, many times more rapidly disappearing uh, and putting, being put into danger than these other, these other life forms. So if there's any place you wish to rename the uh, geological epoch into the Anthropocene, it would be in the, the world of freshwater, uh, based on what a paleontologist would reckon to be the the, the justification for changing the name in the first place. You were talking about sediments, uh, how human beings have changed uh, the, the sediment, sediment cycle. Right. Uh, talk about that. Yeah. A bit. Tell me about that. Right. So, you know, there's a lot. Because we think about, uh, yeah, I mean, we think about water impoundments and the huge changes that have been brought on, on yeah. you know, water systems yeah. and desertification yeah. and all this, but we don't think about sediment, yeah. the role of sediment. Yeah. In terms of sediment, that's a basic, uh, it's a fundamental cycle of the Earth system. You wearing away the continents, and um, there was this amount of sediment that would normally find its way into the coastal zone. And finding its way into the coastal zone, it has a very, very important role in um, in tempering any possible erosion problems in the coastal zone. Well, now we're putting up all these large reservoirs that are intervening in that transport, and by our best reckoning there's something on the order of 30% or 35% of the sediments that used to flow in rivers down to the ocean that are no longer doing so. And when you study these particularly sensitive coastal systems, you see that uh, this trapping of sediment in these reservoirs, which are really for freshwater management, perhaps thousands of kilometers upstream, uh, are now wreaking havoc in in the coastal zones. And And the place where they're wreaking the most havoc, in my view, uh, or in the coastal deltas of the world. This is home to about a half billion people, and uh, these deltas require a fresh supply of sediment that comes uh, from these rivers, but those sediments are no longer flowing down the rivers, and it's putting uh, a large segment of the world's population in great jeopardy. And essentially, these deltas are sinking relative to sea level at a much higher rate than the normal sea level rise, perhaps on the order of 10 times faster. This is sort of an, a quiet, unwritten um, story within the global change question, in particular, the sea level rise question that everyone's concerned about, driven fundamentally by, by um, climate change. But it's accentuated by all of what's happening uh, in terms of the, what's happening on the landscape and the uplands and the, what's happening with these uh, uh, 
sediments being trapped in the large reservoir systems. So the sediments are, we're seeing a large-scale diversion of sediment away from the, the basins. Yes. Yes. So uh, what, what used to flow to the, to the oceans is no longer flowing to the oceans. So whenever a, re a dam or reservoir is built and it stores more than um, a few days of water, you can trap up to 50% of that sediment that used to flow freely downstream. You trap that in the... Um, uh, in the reservoir itself. Uh, the, the large global uh, perspective gives us an average of two or three months of water storage, thereabouts, uh, as, as an, a global average, which traps about 95% of all the sediment that's flowing down to the ocean. So a substantial amount of the wearing away of the continents that connects to the ocean, a basic geophysical connectivity in the Earth system, has now been substantially uh, distorted and modified and diverted um, by an inadvertent um, uh, consequence of, of trapping these large uh, bodies of water and using them for irrigation, using them for flood control, using them for domestic water supply. Uh, and uh, collateral damage is that sediments are not finding their way to the coastal zone in a very, very substantial way and without a recognition of that fact until maybe 10 years ago. Tell me about this fork in the road that you, you were talking about. So, you know, like how do we how do we change? And Gordon Christie was just talking about this seems like a radical idea that we have to sort of totally transform the way we think about our our strategy. We've got to be responsible to the world. Yeah. And if we were to be responsible, think of ourselves as kind of a, like a tool thing. Yeah. How shall we be responsible to the planet when we move, proceed in this particular direction? Yeah. It would totally change the way we do things, like full cost accounting or something like that. So with this fork in the road in mind, what are you standing back yeah. from all these specifics? Yeah, yeah. so, so I, I share his philosophical underpinning to that, to that question, uh, but from a very practical state. Um, if you look at the history of our stewardship of inland waters, and you look at um, where we are today, what we discover is that time and time and time and time and time again, right up into the present, we tend to degrade the systems as a byproduct of our economic development. And you see this really happening very quickly in the, in the um, uh, poor countries of the world that are struggling to, to um, develop. And as they develop, they are, there's all this collateral damage to the water systems and the ecosystems that sustain these um, water supplies. Um, that's the way, of the way of the past. And what uh, the consequence of that kind of thinking is that in order to make the water ready for human use and consumption, you've got enormous costs that are incurred to rehabilitate that water. And we call it a, a state of impairing and then repairing the system. And the repair is way more costly than preventing the problem from happening in the first, first place. So you break and you repair the system. That's what we've done for centuries, if not millennia. And you see evidence for that at the global, fully global scale today, even in places like uh, North America that should know better, <laughs> Canada and the United States, or, or even in, in Europe. And so now we're in a situation where we have impaired the systems, and in a very costly manner, we repair the systems. And 
costs about $750 billion a year to do this repair uh, work. So that's the bill that we get each year for our poor, poor protection and poor stewardship. That's an incredible boost to the economy. And it's a boost to the economy. So we can have an argument about whether there's an incentive to keep that mentality alive. However, taking a longer-term view, out multi-generations, maybe a century, maybe even longer than a century, uh, we're probably arriving at the end of the cheap fossil fuel era. And the cheap fossil fuel era is part and parcel of why we think we can go about business and then repair the damage afterwards, because there was an abundance of, of this resource. It's relatively easy to get and easy to apply f for the r repair operations. But if we look out those many, many decades, many, many generations, that era is going to be over. And so then we're going to ask the question, what can we rely on beside fossil fuels to do the, do our business, do the work of, of protecting our water systems? And we're coming to the conclusion, or my group is coming to the conclusion with many others, that we really have to rely on ecosystems. Ecosystems, if protected and, and of, of sound mind and body, as it were, can give you fabulous free public goods and services to protect drinking water supply, to protect you from flooding, to clean up impaired waterways. I would never be in a position to say that's, that's the only thing we're going to have to use. But we better start thinking about how we can reduce demands for water, be very much more careful about impairing it in the first place, and then sensibly use this green infrastructure or this natural capital, as it were, as a free subsidy that's that's of value in an economic sense. And I think that when we get to the point where we recognize that the old, old ways of doing things through these hard engineering paths, very, very expensive, very fossil fuel intensive, those days are soon going to be over. We're going to have to rely on these ecosystems, and we better make sure that we haven't screwed these ecosystems up to the point where we've produced some permanent damage. Because then it's going to be very, very uh, difficult for us to, to co-inhabit the Earth uh, with these impaired ecosystems that we're increasingly going to be relying on uh, to give us uh, clean drinking water, to give us a sustainable f uh, food supply, to give us a sustainable renewable energy su supplies. This comes from planet Earth, and we have to be very careful about our stewardship at this very critical moment. So the fork in the road is, do we do business the old way, or do we do business in a perhaps more innovative and thoughtful way, thinking ahead multi-generationally? The place where we can really, I think, get a lot of mileage out of this is a place, for example, in Africa that's rapidly, rapidly developing. And there, there's a choice between rapidly developing with these infrastructure um, um, resources that would probably indebt the nations for many, many, many years. So it's been very costly to do this. They probably can't afford it in the first place. So there's sort of the hand is going to be out for that kind of international aid once again. Uh, or think creatively about using what exists. That's a large um, endowment of green infrastructure that they have because they haven't developed yet. And when we make these assessments as to the, the uh, 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 economic um, value of these services to protect water supplies, we're getting something in the hundreds of billions of dollars globally, which puts that at, at par, at parity, with the $750 billion uh, coming into the water sector. And so now I think we can have a, a, a fresh dialogue about um, how that green infrastructure, that natural capital, those wetlands, those protected watersheds, the biodiversity within those watersheds, uh, 
it, it, it's it's not chump change. I mean, it's it's right there with what the engineering sector might see as as a value. If we were able to to change our, our ways of thinking a little bit, to get into this idea that there may be good business opportunities in sustainable thinking, that you don't always have to throw concrete and chemicals at the question to make money. You might be able to make money by taking a little bit of concrete, taking a little bit of chemical, taking a little bit of fossil fuel, but also augmenting it what, with what nature could help you do. And you might consider also reducing your demands for water, maybe reusing water, maybe reusing water with the help of ecosystems to help, help you cleanse that for, for low, low cost relative to uh, putting up a brand new treatment facility with esoteric kinds of treatment. And really think about the business model to institutionalize profit-making into sustainable thinking. Um, working with this, this group in... Um, well, full, full cost yeah. accounting seems to be a concept that is very practical and focused yeah. that would perhaps lead us in that direction to sort of take into account sort of systematically all costs yeah. associated with... But I wonder if the business community would uh, ultimately buy into that because it has an impact on the bottom line. I think you really have to hit the reset button in some sense and just to say, look... We're heading into a different era. It, you should recognize that the era of cheap fossil fuel is over. You should recognize that uh, you can't always throw big engineering at, uh, uh, at every single problem that comes up. Let's think together, and there's, there's a whole body of ecological engineering knowledge. Let's think together about how you can run your business, and we can stop screaming about how the, the sustainability of the planet is at risk. And let's start working on sustainable solutions together where your bottom line is not hurt by that. And we can also begin to institute sustainable thinking because, you know, we have to think what we're doing for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. And just judging by the past, the decisions that we make today will last for 100 years potentially, just like the decisions that, that the, the, the European settlers made in the U.S. and Canada they have consequences that are now only beginning to shake out of the system. They, these are long-term pathways that if you get them wrong, you're going to be going down the wrong path, the very expensive path, the unsustainable path. If you get it right, you may be able to keep the system going in a multi-generational sense. And that, that's where I think we have to have this dialogue with the business community. Now, this is not impossible. Uh, I think one arena where we would have um, some great uh, resonance with uh, investors would be um, for those who manage uh, portfolios, let's say for the retirement uh, um, accounts, where they necessarily, because they're thinking out about retirement plans and payouts over 40, 50 year time horizon. They have a very, very long time horizon. So the concept of sustainability shouldn't be so foreign to those who are managing investment portfolios for retirees. I mean, that, that should be kind of their natural thinking. As it's the natural thinking of insurance companies to be thinking about the climate change question. So if you talk about industries being ahead of the curve on this, the, the insurance industry is extremely interested in what the nature of climate change, which is a century-scale, multi-century-scale uh, phenomenon right now because of all the... the uh, gases that are in the atmosphere that are going to take a long time to, to, even if we stopped all fossil fuel burning today, it's going to take centuries for the system to, to come back into some kind of a, a, a pre-industrial state. 
and we're far from that. So the so the in, the uh, insurance industry is on top of things. They want to know how how variable the climate's going to be. Are we going to be more prone to droughts and floods? Because that affects their bottom line. And so that's just an example where if we identified the right business partners, I think we could talk sensibly about long-term thinking, long-term prevention of problem, and increasing bottom lines, which I, th I think is really how the earth will be transformed. It's not going to be by uh, wishful thinking. It's not going to be necessarily by, uh, by uh, government action, which has been, if climate change is, is any indication, it's going to be sluggish at best, and it's going to be, uh, um, uh, certainly there's going to be pushback from constituencies that, that don't have an interest in going the sustainable route. So you partner with, with the types of industries that do have sustainability in, in their business model, and if they don't have it, you begin to cultivate that thinking, and it's a matter of tran transition. And we are at that fork in the road. Uh, you, you're at the fork in the road, and you take it, you take it. And God knows where we're going to find ourselves in 100 years if we make the wrong turn. Charles Forosmart, he is the founding director of the Environmental Sciences Initiative and Einstein professor in the Department of Civil Engineering at the City University of New York. I spoke with him in Banff, Alberta last year. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. Latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio, here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We are both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.